This is the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast for October 15th, 2019. Welcome to the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast. My name is Drew Messenger Michaels, and I'm getting over a cold, so I'll be brief. Today, I'm talking to Max Krieger about Crossneak Plus, the new puzzle game, which is out for computer-y systems as well as switchy systems. I I guess the Switch Lite, so there's now multiple switchy systems. Anyway, those things. We talk about why the game looks and feels and is the way it looks and feels and is, how aesthetics are inherently tied to politics and history. We talk a fair bit about Cleveland and the Cleveland scene. We talk about Max's previous work. We do not talk about the Blizzard Hong Kong kerfuffle, uh, not because it's not relevant to what we were talking about. It is at least tangentially relevant, uh, but that story sort of hadn't broken yet at the time Max and I were talking. The audio is also a little bit rougher than usual this week just due to connection and microphones and whatever, but I think it's perfectly listenable and entirely worth your time. So enjoy. Um, and yeah. you, you want me to record on my end as well with Audacity? Uh, yeah, that'd be awesome. Just be on the safe side. All right, I will start that now. Groovy. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for taking the time. Of course, my pleasure. Yeah. Um, let's let's start with the basics, and then we'll get more interesting from there. Um, we're mostly here to talk about Crossneck Plus. So, for anybody who hasn't heard of it or who has but doesn't quite know, what is Crossneck Plus? Um, Crossnick Plus is a, what I call, Y2K aesthetic arcade puzzle game. And that often begs the question, what is the Y2K aesthetic? Um, that's kind of, I guess, current contemporary internet vernacular that's emerged to describe a whole flavor of visual and industrial and graphic um, design that really emerged from the late 90s and the early 2000s. Um, think like... Michael Jackson's Scream music video, um, everything is blue and white and everybody has tinted sunglasses on, and um, I guess Blue by Apple 65 is another example, um, just reaching from pop culture, Um, but you know, it was the era of organic industrial design with white plastic everywhere, Um, the iMac G3, um, that kind of stuff, Uh, and so there's kind of this whole, I guess, um, enthusiast's um, interest in it that's developed around blogs like the Y2K Aesthetic Institute and Facebook groups like that. And so that's really the visual flavor that Crossnick Plus uses and it's super core to its identity. Yeah, and it's not just sort of the visual flair. It's the way that NPCs talk to you. It's the menu system. It's like the whole thing is presented almost like it's a game from that era. And it's like I would probably describe the overall Y2K aesthetic as like this bizarre mishmash of of clean futuristic stuff with you know mixed with messy <laughs> throwing everything at the wall i mean like when you're right. playing endless mode in crossnick plus let's say you have this like hyper clean you know carefully chosen desaturated color palette puzzle in front of like live looping video <laughs> like that right. to me is the y2k aesthetic that combination of you know throwing at the wall and seeing what sticks whatever we technologically can achieve on the one hand and be being hyper minimal on the other in a way that's like weirdly what like aspirationally utopian like like why why the minimalism right it's it's this interesting mishmash of ideas that was definitely in vogue at that time yeah exactly and a lot of that i think came from the new technology that was emerging in that era for the first time we were able to shrink down um dot matrix lcd displays onto something other Sorry, I'm going to sneeze. Probably I have seasonal allergies. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, like like things like the Tamagotchi um, and uh, stuff like um, you know early MP3 players. Um, cell phone boom was just approaching at that time, and we were able to really shrink down all of this technology and have screens in the palm of our hand on all of our devices for the first time. And I think as far as you said that that hyper clean minimalistic UI, um, that was really an era of experimentation. People had to figure out how to make UI readable and informative and pleasant to look at on small devices for the first time. 
So I think that that era just, you know, heralded a lot of experimentation that put these visual concepts out there into the, um, I don't know, consciousness of designers in the time. And uh, also it got people thinking about a lot of, you know, what could devices be 10, 15, 20 years from now. And so there were tons of concept devices from all sorts of electronics manufacturers that were shopped around to magazines and, you know, put up in uh, television programs at this time is like, this is what the future will look like. So um, techno futurism and techno optimism really uh, was the word of the day uh, in that era. And techno optimism in particular is something that really kind of seems like a bit of a relic now. Um, but I don't think it's a, a bad or antiquated relic. I just think it's something that um, is interesting to look back on now, given the current tech landscape. Well, that's interesting, right? Because, I mean, it, when I look at the way tech gurus, maybe this has started to collapse a little bit in the last mm -hmm. year or two or something, but right. it seems to me that that sort of glassy-eyed futurism, as I think Ian Bogost called it, mm -hmm. has still been in vogue, you know, well after the turn of the millennium. The The idea that tech can solve everything, the idea that if we just let these, these Randian Ubermenschen uh, go wild on Silicon Valley, they will eventually mm. solve everything for us with innovation, whatever the hell that means. Right. There, like you, you still definitely see this with sort of the cult of Elon Musk. There's, there's a certain subspecies of TED Talk that is definitely about that. Your, your contention is sort of that we've lost the optimism a little bit as we've, for example, realized that social media may have been a mistake and we're, and we're maybe <laughs> not moving forward in one, you know, clean capital M modernist direction in the way we felt like we were. You know, mm -hmm. in, in the nineteen, the late nineteen nineties, or something. Yeah, and you know, you've seen things like um, the promise of Uber and Lyft solving the issues of public transportation really failing to materialize. It's just created sure. problems of its own, um, and things like you know, Elon Musk um, with the promises of a hyperloop and things like that. And it really turned out to be, you know, some folks say a bunch of smoke and mirrors. Um, and and I think an important distinction uh, between the techno futurism of Y two K. And what we have today is that um, Y2K was really interesting in that it was kind of looking forward while being firmly rooted in a pre-broadband internet era. Um, most people were still using dial-up at the time. And so the public consciousness of what the you know, modern internet would make possible hadn't really formed yet. And so in modern tech, there's kind of this idea of the cloud dictating our lives. Um, all of our, you know, crucial applications, all the processing, all of the data is stored offsite on somebody else's server. And with Y2K, um, there was this real sense of ownership and, I don't know, individualism with technology. It was all about self-expression. It was all about self-empowerment. And if you look around at these devices that you see, um, talking about things like social media networks or content providers was almost never a focus. And I find the fact that that was not even really a talking point yet to be super interesting. And I think that people were what rather one of the things that's kind of undermining the um, Silicon Valley boom optimism that kind of heralded in the 2010s nowadays is that people are starting to resent um, that their future is essentially in somebody else's pocket. And I think that's an important distinction to make when we're looking back at Y2K. For sure. Yeah, I had um, I had Zach Barth on when he's been on a couple of times, actually. But he he was on when he had just released, uh, Zytronics had just released Exapunks, the mm. 90s uh, cyberpunk game. And they do a ton of primary research over there at, at Zytronics. And they were saying that originally, like in the first draft of the script, they had a character who was who was sort of pushing back against a bunch of the tech that the characters were using on the basis of privacy. But as they read writing from the time, absolutely nobody was talking about privacy in the context of tech. They were talking about agency, the mm -hmm. idea that you're going to use this stuff to, you know, to 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 extend your will to to take control of your life. And the idea that, you know, like even older, older things in commercial OSs like HyperCard for Mac, the idea that anybody could build a program is, to your point, kind of diametrically opposed to the idea of an app, which is like this thing that comes from Mount Olympus and can only be built you know, built by a, a, an ordained developer and is from the app store and is curated and is for you. And it, it's basically a black box. You're not supposed to know how anything works. I think maybe that's what people are realizing is that like the, the percentage of things people deal with and rely on every day that are black boxes to them has maybe increased. There's something about the Y2K aesthetic where I think like that, like part of the 
the idea is that these 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 cyber teens who you're often playing as or 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 who the story is based around do understand how the tech works. They're like they're plugged in in a way that is aspirational and authentically hopeful in a way that you know, like I don't know. Sometimes the app ecosystem and social media feels more like the the people in Wally or something, mm-hmm. just like just getting content fed to you and being the product because it's ostensibly free. Right, and I think you know a lot of people who argue for the app ecosystem and that will say, well, the average consumer shouldn't have to understand how the tech works. They shouldn't have to be able to you know have full mastery of it because that's not what the average user wants to do. And that's that may be true. Um, to an extent, but I think Y2K uh, in particular wanted to solve that problem with design. They wanted to solve that problem by mimicking organic shapes, by making, you know, what's considered now unconventional exotic UIs that really evoked um, the natural mindset of something like browsing media or talking to a friend. Like some of my favorite devices, concept devices that I saw in my research were there was all this haptic stuff. Like there was something called like a kiss communicator that I think it's like you could, I don't know, you could send your loved one a kiss from far away using this kind of strange looking device that had like a lot of gel and bioorganic components in it. And it was all concept, of course. Um, but yeah, it was kind of this idea that rather than, um, you know, taking away agency from the average user in order to simplify their experience, um, you would give them full agency and wrap it in a package that was innately intuitive to humans. And I think that's something that we've kind of lost sight of and that we could learn a ton from even now. Yeah, no, it's a, that's a very important distinction, I think. And there's this other component, though, too. I mean, because the Y2K aesthetic, as we're talking about, takes its name from a, a, a very like the prototypical computer bug that is mm-hmm. thought of in retrospect as not being as big a deal as we thought, not necessarily because it wasn't a big deal, but because we solved the problem. <laughs> so because there was no disaster, people think of it. So so for anybody who's not familiar, the idea was that when computers moved over from uh, from 1999 to 2000, because most computers stored the year in a two digit format. Uh, they would freak the hell out because it would seem like they had traveled back in time 100 years, which sounds like not a big deal. They think it's 1900. But there were a bunch of systemic checks that that could have thrown out of alignment. It could have meant that systems simply ceased to function. And a ton of work went into making sure that didn't happen. And so it more or less didn't happen. But leading up to it, you know, when this aesthetic was developed the first time around, I think you're totally right that there was a sense of of thinking about the future and solving for the future and solving for people going forward. But there was also sort of a sense of end of days. Like, I think there was maybe a sense that the world or, or the world as we knew it was ending. I think it felt very different from our current apocalypse <laughs> that we're in at the moment. But it's, you know, people were already thinking about climate change, whether or not that term was invoked, people were already thinking about technology betraying us, albeit in a very different way. It's it's this weird this weird this weird mix of techno optimism and, you know, apocalypta. Yeah, that's totally accurate. And, you know, it, it was the turn of a new millennium. And so that evoked a lot of kind of biblical language of revelation and apocalypse. And that was definitely high in the public consciousness at the time. And I think you're absolutely right that, that there was that mix of, you know, techno-optimism and apocalypta. Um, and I think more than anything, it's because it was an era where the die had not yet been cast. We were on the cusp of change. And would we change for the worse or would we change for the better? And I think that was really the question that Y2K asked. And, um, you know, there's the belief that we could use technology in this era of inevitable change to change ourselves for the better. And I personally wanted to make a game to, I don't know, bring that question into the public consciousness again, no matter how vague or no matter how small. Because I don't think that everything's decided. Sure, it's consolidated right now, but you've broken up big, um, you know, multinational companies before. Do it again. Um, And and the power that we have now um, in the palm of our hand with small devices, even something like a Raspberry Pi, is 10 times greater than the power that we had during the Y2K era. So now more than ever, we have the tools. And now it's time to start thinking about it again. Absolutely. And so the game itself, Crossneck, it sort of gestures at that in a bunch of different ways, explicitly, you know, in the text and with the aesthetic, but also sort of implicitly in what the game is. Like, 
it's we have not said yet it's a puzzle game where you make crosses you like have a bunch of colored squares and you have to fill a a full vertical and a full horizontal row that cross each other and then they disappear and it's it's interesting because i have this sense that arcade puzzle games are sort of it's like it's like how people say there are only seven plots really in theater or something which is of course not true there either but there's this idea that everything is match three match four it's all variations on a theme but I had never played, nor in my research did I find a game about crosses like this, or, or you know, full hor- full width, full height crosses. So it, it, it was very interesting to kind of go back to this well of a genre I like and sort of learn, not from scratch, but close to it, how to think about this stuff again. Like it really, it ties in well with the idea of assessing what we have and figuring out what the future looks like to, to be on familiar territory, but look at it in a brand new way. Right. And now that I think about it, it's, it's kind of funny. A lot of people assert that Y2K is nothing more than a curio. Um, and so a lot of people, I guess, could also say the same thing about puzzle games. You know, everything that could be done in a puzzle game had been done. And I certainly in my research didn't find anything quite like Crossnik Plus. I drew a bunch of inspiration from puzzle games of the late 90s, which I personally think that the mid to late 90s was kind of a golden era and experimentation for puzzle mechanics. You got classics like um, Magical Drop and Puzzle Fighter, but you also had really bizarre ones. Like I think my favorite weird puzzle game is called Wetrix. Uh, I, was love on the Wet- I love Wetrix. Wetrix yeah, is what- awesome. Yeah. It's awesome, but it's so weird. It's like yeah, you know, it's, it's 3D, and you have to like maintain these lakes, and there's like rudimentary fluid physics, and it's so um, brazenly esoteric and assured of its coolness that you can't help <laughs> but love Wetrix. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, the plus and Crossnik plus came from, uh, Wetrix plus the Dreamcast port of Wetrix. Uh, oh, cool. I didn't, I did not realize there was a Dreamcast port. I got it. Yeah. I, there's a Dreamcast port called Wetrix down. plus. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's the, you know, revisiting of the, the puzzle game from a mechanical standpoint. I feel like you're right. Everybody kind of assumed for a long time that we had hit the final frontier on that, especially with the glut of mobile puzzle games that we had, all of the match threes, uh, because they were really easy to churn out and people were really more concerned about uh, metrics rather than mechanical innovation in that regard. So puzzle games are kind of seen as the low-hanging fruit. And I have had to deal with a little bit of that um, while marketing the game. There's still an assumption in a lot of corners, oh, it's a puzzle game, this is going to be another match three. Um, And (laughs) You're speaking uh, in the past tense about all this stuff, but Candy Crush still makes a fuck ton of money. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Candy Crush does make kind of a, a ton of money. It's just so funny because it's kind of in a, a different world from where I, I work. You know, as an indie developer, I'm dealing with, you know, small enthusiast communities. And so it's like I can't even see Candy Crush because I'm engulfed by its shadow. It's that <laughs> sure. big. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's an interesting way of thinking of it. Yeah, that's that's no moon. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so... This idea that there are untapped possibilities in genres that are no longer the genre, I think, is always worth exploring, right? Like, because they're invariably when you go back to that, well, there's something worth looking at. But it's also, there's this weird parallel in that, like, to, 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 I guess to go all the way down the history rabbit hole, the Y2K aesthetic and, like, all those designers, what they were reacting against in trying to imagine a future was uh what year did francis fukuyama write the end of history was that like 92 i think it was 1992 this book Mm -hmm. about how neoliberal society was basically stable so we were done Mm -hmm. with history as we had thought it so far right and of course this was wrong right it was utterly wrong and we're living right now in, in in a moment of confirmation that it was wrong but the idea of not having to go through the kinds of struggles societies had gone through and having surplus energy to design everything to be perfect for humans <laughs> felt real in a way that that maybe I don't know what was the turning point, maybe from from Fukuyama through 9-11 or something. Right. There yeah, was this I, idea that we could figure that out. Yeah, I always say 9-11 was the left hook and uh, 2008 was the right jab. And that was the knockout punch. Uh, it was really the yeah. one too that sunk that battleship. Yeah, I mean, to, to me, you know, the I mean, the financial crisis had, you know, I mean, we're we can't even say what the effects were because we're still so like in the middle of them in a certain sense. But you know, nine eleven was the moment when you were saying, you know, is the world going to change for the better or is it going to change for the worse? Nine eleven was like, oh, the worse. Like we're we're going to get coarser and stupider and 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 more violent and and just this is this is a U.S. perspective, obviously, but I think it's hard for people who weren't sort of like 
somewhat of age during 9-11 to understand how much stupider everything got after that. Like, I remember mm-hmm. um, there was a Amanda Bynes movie. Uh, who Does anyone even remember who Amanda Bynes is if they're younger than a certain age? But anyway, uh, just like a silly movie about like an American girl in uh, the UK, I think it was. And she was like the poster was her posing by guards at Buckingham Palace. And she was throwing up a peace sign. And they they like got protested and had to change the poster because it was an anti-war message and and uncool at the moment and and like like that was the level of stupid that we were dealing with culturally and it was such a a 180 from the utopian impulses that i think people had sort of been living in up until then especially if you were any kind of tech nerd yeah it was really a heel turn sort of thing and of course it's no coincidence that um y2k as a movement kind of was dead by 2003 um 9-11 really socked the wind out of those sails and we started to move on to um i don't know other things um but yeah that was um yeah the, the kind of idea of the end of history um and in video games uh in particular a lot of people and this is tangentially related um have fond memories of this aesthetic that was, um, I, I personally call um, Encarticore, named after Microsoft Encarta, um, this kind of um, utopian scholastic uh, sort of look and vibe where you would have like quotes from Nelson Mandela and like pictures of the Mona Lisa appearing on your, 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 your desktop computer. And so there really was, we were inundated with it. It was everywhere. And then all of a sudden, gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Encarticore. I've never heard that phrase, but I remember Encarta so well, and that is, in retrospect, so definitive of the era. So it's like, what is worth rescuing, do you think, about that aesthetic? Is it purely just the the techno-optimism? Because I think it's correct to be skeptical about techno-optimism in, in this, the age of your Bezos's and your and your your Zuckerberg's and your Musk's, right? It makes sense to think, well, maybe technology on its own can't solve things. But is it is the distinction to go back and remember a time when we thought we could solve things together with technology as opposed to thinking, well, if the technology is sufficiently advanced, it'll solve everything for us? Because I think that's what curdled after 9-11, right? We thought technology can keep advancing, but it should all be about war and surveillance as opposed yeah. to like building a society. Like, is is that version of optimism what you think is like still compatible? Like, why do people like this aesthetic so much? It's not pure nostalgia, I don't think. I think there's something deeper going on than that. Is it like remembering that form of optimism? I think that's exactly right, that it is remembering that form of optimism. And a thing I like to use to illustrate that was uh, Y2K's um, heavy adjacents, I would say practically joined at the hip um, with 90s rave culture. Um, That's really where it was born. Um, The Designer's Republic, Uh, a UK design house that a lot of uh, video game players might know for their work on the Wipeout series of racing games on the PlayStation, Mm. which are dearly beloved and kind of a shining example of Y2K in games. Um, Ian Anderson and the Designers Republic, they got their start doing um, rave flyers and LP covers um, for UK jungle and drum and bass acts. Um, And so there was kind of this uh, distinct coupling between Y2K techno-futurism and rave culture, you know, the ultimate form of 90s uh, self-expression and kind of anti-authoritarianism. Um, and you would see in Y2K ads, you would have like rave models, you know, uh, demoing this stuff. Um, a lot of, you know, um, I always said that Y2K fashion in particular um, had a lot of black models in a way that I thought was really interesting for something considered like techno-utopian. Um, and it was really noticeable. And the other thing that's true is like a lot of evocation of uh, a disregard for authority and an individualism empowered by tech. And I think that that's totally worth reviving because tech is a tool and we have tools available now um, like we've never had before. The technology available to end users hasn't stopped growing. It's just been out of the limelight because so much of it has been focused on, um, you know, social media and the app ecosystem and motivating people to work and develop things. And people already are like an awesome example of what I consider uh, continuing the modern Y2K spirit is this DIY device I saw on the internet. Um, That's this kind of blob shaped thing, which already points for being a blob looking organic, but it's this thing you can print yourself that has a white noise generator that you can sit over an Amazon Alexa. And what that does (laughs) is um, until you say a keyword, it will generate white noise. 
and it will block out Alexa's ability to, you know, monitor the area and eavesdrop on you until you want to talk to Alexa. It baffles Alexa's open mic in the same way that the the Juggalo makeup baffles facial recognition software or something. Exactly. And I think that's the Y2K spirit alive and well. And I really just want to kind of do my part to evangelize that um, philosophy, really. Yeah, I'll for sure link to the Zach Barth Exapunks episode because he talked a bunch about how looking into hacker culture, you know, as it existed then and as it still exists now, a ton of it is that idea of agency of like, if you see a problem, you don't merely complain about it, bemoan it, take your business elsewhere whatever, you solve it for yourself. You come up with a solution to the problem that may or may not be in line with commercial interests. That isn't the point. The point is there is a problem, technology can solve it, so let's solve it. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, the anti-authoritarian thing is, I think, really important. I mean, the, the reason I use the silly Amanda Bynes example is like that was like the, the smallest imaginable transgression against authority <laughs> and cultural homogeneity. And even that was intolerable. Like that's, you know, when I, when I talk about the level of stupid, that's what I'm sort of gesturing at. So yeah. it's like. I imagine it's it's interesting that like the Y2K aesthetic didn't get the suffix punk. It's not like millennium punk or something like it's it's named after a crisis that almost was, which is not yeah. super normal for an aesthetic. Uh, I, I mean, I guess I can't I can't think of any others um, that I mean, there, there are there are aesthetic movements named after crises that did happen, you know, like like plague art and things like that. But it's interesting. I mean, it is punk in a way. You got some ring in there. <laughs> yeah, uh, my bad. That'll uh, cease momentarily. I no, I no worries. Hope. No, no worries at all. I'll uh, I'll just I'll just chill here for a second. Chilling out. Yeah, chilling out. <laughs> Throw in some uh, technical difficulties music at this point, probably. There we go. We're good. All right. Excellent. Uh, yeah, so the anti-authoritarian thing is, I think, as important as the techno-futurism thing. I think I think that's maybe the secret combination. Because if you have techno-optimism without anti-authoritarianism, that's when you sort of give up your freedom to all-knowing tech daddies, I suppose, would be the correct <laughs> Daddy. term. Daddy um, Bezos, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that that's perhaps where we've gone wrong, is we kept the technological advancement and even a certain sense of optimism without the spirit of rebellion without without with, without acknowledging the obvious truth that people with power don't know what the fuck they're doing and never have at any point in human history. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You hit the nail on the so, head. All right, cool. So, let's talk a little bit about your previous game, which is super different. Um but but related in the sense that it's about so that we live in a society, man. It's it's about like the idea. Uh, I'm talking about train. In case okay. in case you're not sure, or in case anybody else isn't sure. Um, for mentioning and finding train, um, I haven't exactly. I don't know. Um, been circulating it widely. So props on doing the research. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's 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 gettable. It's not prominent, but it's it's still up on Game Jolt. And I'll if if it's cool with you, I'll link to it for anybody who wants to try it out because it's a it's a really interesting game. Yeah, why not? Fair to say it's rough around the edges, but it's yeah. a very it's a fascinating idea. So basically, you're on a train and you talk to people, and it has this sort of uh, unique conversation system. I've never seen anything quite like it. Where you've got these little bubbles that represent topics, and you combine them to come up with questions to ask, statements to make, etc. And it's sort of about getting to know a person over the the course of several conversations and having a good think about topics that might be hard for them, and basically just seeing NPCs and by extension strangers as people. So it is it is literally a technological way of modeling a way people can be better to each other. And I think you said in a in a Gama Sutra write up or something that you felt you needed to make it after you played Mass Effect 2 and more or less accidentally had sex with I think it was Miranda. Yes. Um, yes. Right. <laughs> I forgot I wrote that, but yes, you're right. <laughs> Which yeah, I mean I think you say in the article and I and I agree if you can accidentally sleep with someone in a game that, that isn't Saints Row is it four with the with the ro the romance button at all times then something has gone wrong right um, so so yeah I think Train is it belongs in the same discussion even though both the aesthetic and the gameplay uh, and the aesthetic of the gameplay are are very 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 different because it still it has these same issues of of questioning and of empathy and of imagining how society could be rather than just being stuck the way it is and becoming a more luxurious version of its current self so it's like yeah. um yeah and i with train you're exactly right that's i wanted to you know do something experimental with the dialogue system to get us to rethink how we interact with other um npcs rather than seeing them as um ways to accomplish our goals and to progress um, the game, 
um, to see conversation as conversation, um, something that grows organically, something that develops naturally, and something that is not linear, something that can go forward and back and roundabout depending on how you go through it. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess I guess I never really thought about how those two are related, but you're right. Um, it's really kind of embodying that Y2K um, concept of um, creating an naturally human intuitive interface uh, for how we interact with something considered mundane um, in a lot of circles and you know, games like you know you talk to an NPC you have a list of things and that's that so revisiting what we consider mundane and banal yeah mundane um, and transactional that's the other thing that I think it reacts against yeah yeah exactly that's right yeah, I mean, and it still is, you know, it is gamified in a certain sense because you, you're you're collecting nodes of conversation and you are making progress and all those things, but it sort of frustrates your the ordinary way that uh, that most games encourage you to use conversation trees, which is to get something out of someone in a very sort of you know what number is going to be the highest kind of uh, kind of way. And you know, it's not the only game to reflect on this, but you know, the the way conversation and especially romance works in a lot of games asks the player to be a little bit of a sociopath in a way that is uncomfortable <laughs> if you take a step back. Absolutely. It's, yeah, I, uh, the way that I see... And the, 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 the crazy part is, is that as series like Mass Effect and Dragon Age went on, they, they doubled down because people were loving it. They were leaning more and more and more into it to the point where you said Saints Row 4 had the romance button almost to the point of parody. And yeah, yeah. that transactionality and, I don't know, goal-driven um, approach to NPC um, romance, I, I agree. It is sociopathic. I've always felt a little bit alienated by it. And it's also, with Mass Effect in particular, this is like a little less true in Dragon Age, but but in Mass Effect, because they're sort of structuring the game as though it's a, a PG-13 action movie, in, in the words of someone or other at Bioware at the time, <laughs> sex is really a prize. Like, the pro yeah. the process of... Uh, uh, wooing someone takes the length of the game and then there is sort of one sexual encounter but, th but there's zero simulation of being in a loving relationship with this person who you are also traveling in space with and going on missions with and whatever which is the more interesting thing uh, it sort of goes out of its way to you know by the time the band is back together it's time for the big mission so there's no time for that stuff it seems to me that's something else that train was reacting against that it is it is not that it's all romantic relationships it certainly it by no means is but the idea of a relationship that goes on over a period of time and changes and matures and whatever as opposed to it reaches its culmination achievement unlocked you're done which is how characters can often npcs can often get treated in games right exactly and i mean i kind of at a cop out there to train characters can get on and off it and that provides a very uh, convenient plot element for people to enter and exit the, the sure. game but um yeah it's i never wanted there to be kind of a sense of finality with how this character story arc ends like your character story arc should not end um when their utility to you ends um yeah, yeah, yeah. something like you know like that and then like you're right in mass effect it's like the, the sex scene is the end point rather than the starting point of a new dynamic between the relationship between you and that character. Yeah, I so remember, um, what was it? I guess I, I was with Liara in the first game and then I was mm -hmm. with Tali in the second game and I like went out of my way to try to get them to talk about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like to create those awkward situations. Not because... Not because it felt good, but because it felt plot interesting. And the game sort of, with one exception, I think, in the DLC, like, refused to acknowledge that dynamic. Which, if you're writing a game about relationships and human drama and, and whatever, you know, guns and conversation and space, all of that, it seems like that would be, it's a bit of a wasted opportunity, you know? But, but it's, it's always interesting to me when a game of that scale leaves out something that seems emotionally key because you see where the priorities were, right? And that just, that wasn't the priority of those games games like that that degree of sort of ongoing human relationship wasn't what they were after or, or maybe what not what they thought their fans wanted to your point yeah and i almost i don't know i find that kind of um insulting to the fans um you know challenge them give them something to i don't know broaden their perspective i'm sure that they would be very happy with it but i think you're right in that they just decided that 
realistically, the number of people who are going to care about this and benefit from it are so small that we should allocate our time elsewhere. And I think that was the decision that was made with Mass yeah, Effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, it goes into a vicious loop, you know, that's related to what you were saying about puzzle games, where it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy to say, we have to make a match three that's free to play and has a premium currency right. or whatever, because that's what people want. But it's like, if there's a certain kind of mobile player that has only ever had that offered to them, then of course that's what they're going to go for. It, it doesn't mean that's the only thing they could enjoy. It just means that it's, an you know, you have a market eating itself by offering the same thing forever and expecting to grow infinitely. Right. And in mobile, it was a really interesting case because of the time when mobile gaming um, emerged. Um, we were still reeling from the 2008 recession. And so there was a huge focus on, you know, free to play lowering uh, financial barriers to actually getting into the game to zero and then using that as kind of a Trojan horse to maximize the amount of money from your players, you know, the, the whale exploitation sort of thing. And the stuff that I read at the time, um, all the doomsayers saying, oh, consoles are dead, premium is dead, free to play is king. And I was reading all of that and just the amount of manipulative and disingenuous um, psychology being applied to the player. Um, I think if people go back and read a lot of the think pieces from back then, um, maybe not now, but maybe in five years, uh, you can kind of go, Jesus Christ, what were you thinking? Yeah, but, well, it's, it, it, it did not occur to me until right now, but there is a parallel in the way that cynic, the more cynical aspects of free-to-play were deployed, you know, a, a parallel between that and the way the financial crisis happened, which is, you know, subprime mortgages. Like, it should be very easy for someone to have a house, and mwahaha, now we will use this to outsmart ourselves with these weird collateralized debt packages and create a giant house of cards. Similarly, there's an unstable industry that says, you don't have to pay at all to play the game, but we're going to do everything possible to make you pay a whole lot after you've already played the game a whole lot. Right, like, this, this weird, underhanded, like you say, Trojan horse, it seems to me was the order of the day in a way yeah. that I, again, I think we're still reckoning with the idea that the, these, these too clever by half psychological manipulations and, and financial instruments are inevitably going to collapse. And I think, I think we still as a global society have not accepted that. I think we think if we can, who was it recently? You said it's only a bubble when it bursts. Like it's not a bubble until it bursts or something, which is fucking insane. Like if you can observe a pattern of boom and bust, then then it's a bubble well before it busts. But we haven't learned that lesson, you know. And the people who you know benefit the most from these bubbles are the ones who suffer the least when they finally pop. And that's of course, what of course. Comes down to. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there, you know, as with uh, as with subprime mortgages, there were yeah, exactly the the victims were uh, in of, of free to play were the people who were least going to get remunerated and and who it's, uh, it just it it sucks <laughs> it sucks yeah. and it's 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 a real shame because it's so um i've talked to other people about this but like games have this unique ability to put you in someone else's shoes in a way that even you know a book does it in a different way but a game lets you interact with a system as a different person potentially or 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 something and that's that's often squandered potential because when you approach cynically something that has the opportunity to increase someone's empathy it's just there's something so perverse about it <laughs> you know what i mean yeah, and there's also um, I, I there's a lot of discourse in my my usual uh, feed about the empathy idea in games and how we approach the idea of empathy in games and how it's like oh if we put the person into a first person view of somebody who experiences something traumatic that this will build empathy and I feel like that's such a game developer approach to it that really I don't know is missing out on a lot of the key. Um, human interactions and associations with mechanics that create an idea of a sense of empathy or even just emotionally in general. Like if you are suddenly like, if you're suddenly first person viewpoint VR in like a first person shooter, you're still playing a first person shooter. You just change the camera angle. Um, and it's just the, the, the complex approach to empathy in games is something that a lot of people really don't get. And I feel like rather focusing on, you know, the nuances and the cultural pre-existing cultural associations and mechanical interactions 
is something that often gets ignored in favor of doing something big and flashy in order to say, oh, look, we're creating empathy. Give us grant money so we can make more empathy. <laughs> right, 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 right. Exactly. We're an empathy factory. The empathy bubble yeah. will never burst. But it's like yeah. we there are games of a certain scale or at a certain level are so conventional in a certain sense that simply not doing everything expected in a first person shooter or whatever is itself a subversion and you know we went through that period where every game had the the bioshock do you feel like a hero moment in it and just sort of sort of patted itself on the back for having it and had its cake and ate it too and that was that right um far cry 3 i, I think of a lot as, as as far as that goes um but it was it's almost unfair to single it out because it was every game for a minute there but like the idea that your work is done <laughs> instead of thinking a little bit more about how you make someone empathize i, I think a ton about yoko taro's games in this context yes. where both the protagonists and the npcs have character arcs that sounds simple but it's actually like relatively rare in games for there to be that much thought in the writing about what the events happening on screen would do to someone and how they would change for better and often for worse right yeah like with with near and near automata the uh the vignettes that you find in every corner from talking to an npc to looking at a weapon um do so much to create the idea of a you know universe with actual consequences outside of your scope of vision and that's just text you know that's the simplest form of conveying information possible in a video game and even that does so much more to heighten the sense of empathy and connection. You're absolutely right. Yeah, a game that sort of cribbed from that playbook or, or second order cribbed, cribbed from a game that cribbed from it uh, recently was was Anodyne 2, uh, mm. which is very much a game about empathy and empathizing with people who are not like you and who are perhaps confusing or disturbing when you first meet them or, or something like that. Um, that to me was was really powerful in a, in a way that... Uh, that the just slapping a different interface or a different system on top of the same old interaction isn't necessarily. <sighs> Sorry about that. Alex. Oh, that's all good. <laughs> no worries. No worries. It's tis the season. I guess not really. Right. It's you're in California though. So it's always. The oh, season. oh, no, 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 no. I am not. I am not in California, my friend. I am oh, okay. from Cleveland. I am from Cleveland, Ohio. I knew you were from Cleveland, right but that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. I actually really, I really enjoy Ohio personally. Yeah, but, uh, Cleveland's, Cleveland's got a lot of good stuff in it, more than people think. He said with, with just the slightest hint of, I've had to argue this before, in, in his voice. The thing that drives me crazy is, it's like somebody says, oh, you're from Cleveland, ha ha, here's this, it was like this viral video called the um, hastily made Cleveland tourism video, I think. <laughs> I recall that, that yeah, yeah. Yeah, that recalls that, and they're like, oh, la la, we're going to quote this video. The video's 10 years old. Give that video six more years, and it's old enough to drive. The world has changed <laughs> since then. <laughs> yeah people's i mean that is it's a big strange beautiful country and and people's um recursive bad takes about parts of it they've never been to are are sort of tiresome i i definitely yeah. agree um i've lived all over I've, I've i've done the whole lower i've lived in the whole lower 48 but i've been to the whole lower 48 and i, I grew up in la i lived in chicago i'm on the east coast now uh, and i got family down south so i'm i'm all over all the time and all of the stereotypes about different regions of the country definitely exist for a reason, but none of it's never quite as simple as what people are thinking. Yeah, and I lived, um, I, I went to school in Chicago, actually. I'm, I went to uh, DePaul University and went to their game dev program and then moved back after a um, uh, job offer I got. I did get a job offer in games and um, a certain studio, which came under fire recently for offering $12 an hour wages to its temp programmers, offered me $12 an hour to the, be a temp programmer. And I said, absolutely not. And I came back here and took a job where I was making decent money instead. <laughs> there you go. Um, there you go. But yeah, like, you know, I, I lived in Chicago and there are a lot of things I liked about Chicago and there are stereotypes about Chicago, which are accurate. But also there are a lot of things I missed about living here, which is part of why. I came back. Yeah, fair enough. I think I assume anybody who Franny uh, introduces me to is in California or at least passed through. So that was my assumption there. Apologies. A lot no, of love no, for the no, Midwest, no though. And especially like the DePaul program has a very interesting flavor to it. I had um, Phil Tibetowski on mm. back when Octodad came out. Yep. And there's there's this sort of spirit of, um, I don't know, adventurousness and, and a lack of expectation in a lot of the stuff that comes out of what I would think of as the DePaul scene that throws away some of the assumptions we've been talking about. Where like Octodad was a revelation for people because it's a comedy game where the gameplay is the comedy, which at the time seemed like a rare enough thing, you know? Um, it, it seems to me that 
if you, again, if you if you're too ensconced in convention, you forget to ask the kinds of questions that something like Crossnick Plus, something like Train, something like Octodad thinks to ask. Right, and another example of what I love about the Chicago dev scene is uh, Bitbash, uh, the totally. festival that they just had there. Um, they um, it started out in this warehouse for this t-shirt company called Threadless. And then it was kind of low-key for a bit. And then this year, it came back with a roaring vengeance um, right inside the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry, which if you go to Chicago and you haven't been to MSI, you really ought to go. It's one of the coolest museums I've been to, one of the coolest museums in the country. And yeah, Bitbash takes this really um, unorthodox and playful approach uh, for a game expo. Oftentimes, um, there's this idea of game expos being for developers by developers or for developers to get visibility or, you know, for developers to network. But Bitbash really takes a public-facing approach um, to the idea of a games expo and games festival. Like, this is about showcasing games and getting people from anywhere to come in and play them. And that's why I think MSI was a great venue for that. But yeah, that approach to it, really making it about play and everyday interaction and the human beings who you're actually making the games for, we can get so engulfed in our own um, circles and our own perceptions of reality based on the, you know, the, the visibility we're trying to attain that we can sometimes forget the perspective of just the people who are getting out there and playing games. And that's the kind of thing that I really loved about kind of, I guess, the Chicago games approach. Um, that yeah. is a fantastic. Absolutely, absolutely. There's there is the spirit in Chicago of um of just general. I don't know, like there it, it is a scene that contains multiple scenes. It's a scene with chambers mm-hmm. in it, as opposed to a city like New York that just has an infinity of scenes that overlap but don't necessarily have much to do with each other. I, I remember just being in Chicago in the you know in the game space and art in zines and whatever. There's this sense of of the the scenes themselves composing a a meta scene or or a mega scene or, or a hyper scene or something like that yeah, that I think is really good for collaboration. Yeah, and I agree. And it's kind of, it's similar just to how the, the, the city itself is, you know, you have like, in, in places like New York, for example, all of the boroughs are really kind of their own, you know, entities under themselves. But in Chicago, you have the neighborhoods and they're considered distinct cells, but they're all, you know, part of the city. So I guess like analog kind of matches up to what the way you described how the different scenes of art and media interact in Chicago. Oh, and that's something I really liked about that city. Absolutely. The neighborhoods really all have their own flavor in Chicago. And yet, I, I don't think people stick to their corners quite as much. Exactly. I don't know. There's, there's, there's this entirely accurate stereotype about New York where people live within a five to ten block radius and, and never yep. leave it um, because everything you need is within that radius. But it's such a shame to not see the rest of the city. Um, yeah, Chicago is not like that in my experience, and it's uh, I treasure it for that. But uh, yeah, so you're born and raised in Cleveland or around That's- Cleveland? Yeah, I was born in Cleveland, raised in Cleveland, went off to school uh, in Chicago and came back to Cleveland, which is where I'm at right now. Yeah, and it's so like, I don't know anything about the Cleveland uh, indie scene, or or is there a Cleveland indie scene um, in, in the same way you're describing? There is. Um, I'm a regular attendee of the Cleveland Game Developers. Um, you know, you're in Cleveland and you're listening to this. We meet every third Tuesday of the month at Phoenix Coffee on Lee Road. It's great. Um, but uh, a, an event in Cleveland uh, just wrapped up uh, this past weekend, actually, that embodies everything that I love about making art in Cleveland. And that's uh, Ingenuity Fest uh, just wrapped up this weekend. And essentially, there's this old warehouse space because Cleveland's, you know, kind of a poster child, industri- post-industrial rust belt. There's all these aging factories, all this aging rusting infrastructure over the Cuyahoga River Valley in Cleveland just kind of, you know, like a, a, an exoskeleton or a cicada's husk kind of just sitting there empty. And so this one warehouse um, on the St. Clair Superior District um, got scooped up and turned into a colla- art, art collaborative. So there are artists who stay down there full time um, and have space where they work. And every year um, they pull in artists, not just from Cleveland, but people come from all over to work on Ingenuity Fest and deck out this old warehouse um, into this amazing um, art and multimedia gigantic installation party sort of thing. Um, I always describe it as like Burning Man with more Midwest flavor and without all the weird Silicon Valley rich creeks um, pulling up their arms <laughs> into it. Um, in fact, there were some people there who came from Burning Man to go to Ingenuity. They, like, they brought their burning stuff to Ingenuity, which I thought was really cool. 
Um, That's nice. and so you get you get the weirdo aesthetic, but without sort of the uh, the cultural baggage. That, that exactly, and the financial uh, stakes, really, because right. you know Cleveland. Um, yeah, people do come to Cleveland because Cleveland is kind of broke, and you know that's just true. But um, Cleveland, what is true about Cleveland is we have arts and culture, um, kind of um, what's the word? Um, well, forget that word. Um, yeah, we have arts and culture institutions uh, that are really, you know, something that would think beyond a city of our scope, which is because they were once beyond a city of our scope, um, because Cleveland used to be a lot bigger. And that's when these things were founded, like the, the Cleveland Institute of Art, which is constantly ranked as one of the top five art museums in the United States, and it's free. Um, our, you know, we have a lot of local theater. Playhouse Square um, is a huge theater complex, like third biggest in the country, I think. Um, and so there's all of this arts and culture infrastructure, um, and finally found that word infrastructure. Um, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, all of this arts and culture infrastructure in Cleveland that's so readily accessible. And um, between that and the food is really good here. That's, that's just true. But um, between that and a low cost of living, it's a great place to make art. And that brings all sorts of people together um, who are really unconventional. And it creates something that's really genuine. And I think trying to create a genuinely eclectic scene of artists is something that people are pouring in tens of millions of dollars to try to engineer in major urban centers in the U.S. And it just doesn't work like that. And so you don't have people pouring that money into Cleveland because nobody wants to pour that kind of money into Cleveland. And so it's actually naturally emerging in a city that's pretty pleasant to live in. So I really enjoy it. It turns out it's really hard to artificiate that kind of scene, but to build a new you know, to, to use existing infrastructure to build something new and relevant turns out to be not easy, but a lot more possible. Like, it's it's really hard to do this kind of thing inorganically, I think. And that's the thing about Clayton. It's, it's 100% organic. You get all the quirks of it being uh, a lot of people. I forgot who said it, but somebody once described said or um Somebody once described Cleveland as the biggest small town in the world, and it kind of is. Um, you can't step on people's toes here because everybody knows everybody, and you'll piss people off. So don't do it. Be nice. Um, <laughs> and yet, and yet, it has all the scales and the institutions of of a city that is much larger and doesn't have that small town vibe. Exactly, and stuff like um, I remember when um, Yayoi Kusama's Infinity Mirrors uh, just finished up at the Met. And people were paying, you know, absurd amounts of money and camping on sidewalks and all sorts of things to get in to see it. And then uh, it came to un untag me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then it came to Cleveland. And I mean, yeah, you had to pre-order tickets a little bit in advance, but there were some days later in the exhibition where you could go in day of. So I could go in and get the exact same experience as you could get over in the Met. Um, and, you know, not have to totally put my life on hold. And that's the kind of thing I really love about being here and working here as a solo game developer. I think if I lived anywhere else um, with the budget I had and the resources that I have to work with, making Crossneak Plus just wouldn't have been possible. It just mm. wouldn't have happened. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it, it's very interesting to me how important a scene can be to a solo developer. Because, like, a solo project is a meaningful term, but it's always a little bit of a misnomer. You always need, at the very least, people to bounce ideas off of. You need, like, like being in a community still makes it a hell of a lot easier to be a solo dev. I talked to uh, Gabby Durienzo about this in the context of Toronto. Um, Toronto is another, you know, another uh, city people don't think about. Well, they do lately because the Toronto scene has exploded, right? Mm -hmm. But it's, an, it's another city that is not necessarily up at the top of mind for most people who think about this stuff casually, but that has this incredibly vibrant scene and has a disproportionate amount of rather incredible art coming out of it. Uh, it's really cool to know that Cleveland has, uh, has similar stuff going on. I will need to look further into uh, other good work being done there. Yeah, um, the guy that you want to talk to if you want to learn more about the Cleveland game dev scene is a guy named Jared Huntley. He is a superhero, an organizer, a developer, a networker, a father, a friend. Um, he's so charismatic and so uplifting. He is really, I don't know, I think if I never met Jared, I wouldn't have gotten to make Crossneak Plus. He's one of the chief organizers of the Cleveland game developers. So if you want, I can connect the two of you later if you want to talk a little bit more about Cleveland and games. Because That'd be amazing, yeah. That'd be amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, what I'm trying to do, we didn't really talk too much about what the show is before we started talking. We just dove in, which was fantastic. But the, the sort of twin goals of this podcast are, are a, to provide a place for game developers to talk about 
stuff other than their five press talking points that they've already said over and over and over. Um, and thank that, you. yeah, I mean, <laughs> thank you for saying it. Um, and, and B as a, as an extension to sort of provide a primary source for people who want to know more about how this stuff gets made. And that means talking about games in a way that makes sense to people who love games, but would in no sense consider themselves capital G gamers. And it also means sort of extending feelers out into scenes that, that exist and, but that people may have a hard time finding especially people who don't already know someone who knows someone so you know this is this is killer i would i would love for you to make that connection and i appreciate you talking up the scene even though i i, I slightly get the sense the city of cleveland might be paying you but that's okay that's perfectly fine oh they don't have the money to pay <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah exactly corrupt that kind of corruption is impossible just by the nature of the beast fair enough there's there's something to that as well. Never been an issue in Chicago. So yeah, so 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 Crossneak Plus. When people hear this, it'll be out. Um, yeah. So and it's and it's out on um, computer platforms and Switch initially. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, we're getting Switch and also um, PC, Mac, and Linux uh, on both Steam and Itch.io. If you want to, you know, do the Itch.io thing, I love them. They're a fantastic platform. Out of all of the tools and the people that I've worked with. Itch has been the easiest, simplest, and most pleasant. So plug for Itch. Yeah, totally. Definite plug for Itch. I got to talk to Leaf not too long ago and like mm -hmm. just like yeah, talk I, about someone who really, really cares and is trying to do the right thing. Yeah, I actually, um, I met Leaf without knowing who he was. Um, I think three years ago at my very first GDC, um, it was at the old Game Nest space, which is now regrettably gone. Uh, it was a really cool um, kind of game dev collaborative in San Francisco. And uh, yeah, Leaf and I just talked for a while and we were looking at this uh, project that was in the works there that was still, you know, really rough on its feet. And he does care. He really does. Um, and, you know, just really earnest and easy to talk to. I mean, busy, but... Um, yeah, I, I, and I had no idea who Leaf was until afterwards, and I was like, oh, okay. Totally. So so this pattern of release is someone I'm seeing a lot more, where you know people release stuff on Itch, because Itch is amazing. People release stuff on Steam, because that's where most of the PC players are. And then if folks are going to prioritize a console, it's usually Switch first. Um, now, this game is a uniquely good fit, I think, for the Switch because it has the options for, on the computer, sort of a mouse-based interface or a button-based interface, whereas on the Switch, um, I haven't had a chance to try that version yet, but I assume it's like touchscreen uh, where yes. you would use mouse. So it's like, it's perfect. You know, the idea that you can uh, you can switch, ha ha right back, right back and forth between those control schemes seamlessly makes it make sense. Was that the main reason you targeted Switch or did, was it also a matter of that's where the audience is or, or a bit of both? Um, a bit of both. Um, yeah, I, I really, Touch and Crossneak were conceived together. I wanted it to be touch-based. When we were actually doing some um, promotion for the Kickstarter, uh, because uh, for a little bit of background, um, vanilla Crossneak, or just, you know, plain old Crossneak, started as a browser game uh, back in November of 2017. Um, I had a little bit of a visit from the uh, social media viral fairy uh, and gained like 4,000 Twitter followers overnight in an incident involving... Yeah, an incident involving the Cheesecake Factory, which is kind of a podcast of its own. Um, and uh, so I said, what the heck? I want to get out of my job. Let's kickstart this. And when we were on the Kickstarter trail, we actually were demoing it on a Microsoft, no, on a some like Wacom uh, device that has like a Windows tablet PC to really get people playing with touch controls. Uh, so that was, you know, part of it from the get-go. Um, obviously, the Switch is a perfect fit for that. And the other reason why I, out of all three consoles, I targeted Switch is that I feel like um, people who describe themselves as quote-unquote Nintendo gamers or Nintendo loyalists would be the most likely to be interested in a kind of mechanics-forward game like Crossneak Plus. I feel like um, to have that sort of thing on something like PlayStation 4, uh, you would have to up the graphical fidelity and kind of the, smoke, you know, the um, pageantry a lot to register to players. But I think Nintendo's consoles kind of have a reputation for being home to smaller, simpler, and more elegantly designed experiences. And that's what I was really hoping to target when bringing Crossneak Plus to Switch. Totally, totally. It's like a small scale, a smaller scale, a less extreme version of how the, the 3DS sort of trounced the, the PlayStation Vita commercially. Just, you know, despite, or rather, I think maybe partly because the latter was such a vastly more powerful piece of hardware having a lower barrier to entry made that more meant that more people could 
take bigger risks, simply make more stuff for the 3DS. You're seeing you're seeing that maybe a little bit with PSVR, I think. Maybe the Oculus Quest will change that. But like there's this interesting phenomenon where the lower specced piece of hardware can be more appealing, perhaps counterintuitively, for exactly that reason, because people's expectations are different, because the barrier to entry is lower, as you're saying, for a developer. Uh, that pattern is fascinating to me. It, it goes against the sort of uh, nightmare tech arms race we've been in for a long time, where it's always just more faster, more powerful, more power sucking. You know, you see even Sony backing off on that a little and, pl- and playing up the greenness of the PS5, I suppose. Um, it makes sense that we're moving away from that sort of... Uh, everything is is a progression toward the most powerful console imaginable and it's more about where does this game belong and where's the audience right and it's you know it's really kind of it's a it's a, a diminishing return situation with um power and i think that we're just kind of getting to the point where the number of people who benefit from pushing the pedal to the metal on power and delivery is so small that it's something everybody's having to reckon with and um the other thing that's true um with um Actually, hold on. Just a second. Okay. Yeah, sorry, I almost sneezed there. All good. Um, sorry about your allergies. There's nothing. There's nothing in creation like unique, you know, as uniquely unpleasant as almost sneezing. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that sucks. Big wad of ragweed right outside of my place. It's so pretty, but it's it's hell. Yeah. Yeah, it's hell. But um, the other thing that's true um about that sort of thing is um the porting process um nowadays is so simple, um, at least relatively. I feel like if I was a game dev, even one generation ago, with the Xbox 360, the PS3, um, and the, the Wii, I don't know if I would have been able to pull it off just because the tools have improved so much. Um, exporting Unity, which I developed uh, CrossNeak Plus in, to Switch, um, easy as could be. I had it up and running. I mean, I had to make a lot of changes, but I had it up and running in like a week. Um, and so now that we have that freedom to choose and tool chains are, you know, almost universal, there's a lot more of an ability to discern what kind of player is on this platform and what does this platform's brand um, have in common with the brand of my game. And so that's why I felt like Nintendo was the best. Way. Yeah, makes complete sense to me. Can I ask you to tell some version of the Cheesecake Factory story? Because this was a research fail on my part. And I, I feel All like right. I'd be remiss if I didn't get you on the record. Okay. So, um, I'm first of all, I'm glad that it was a research fail. I'm glad I can finally put this incident behind me. Um, <laughs> uh, for a while, I could never escape it. And I was kind of worried that it would be my legacy. This would be everyone's um, first question for the rest of your career slash natural life. Yes. Um, so, uh, back in, you know, November of 2017, right when I put out Vanilla Crossneak, I was doing a little bit of early holiday shopping. And I decided, uh, you know, I was in this kind of area where everything was like, you know, one of those outdoor malls where they try to make everything look like a building. I forget what those are called. I should know. Um, but, uh, you know, like upscale, that's where like, the Trader Joe's is. That's where the Crate and Barrel is. That's where mm-hmm. the um, Nordstrom Rack is, all that stuff. Um, so I was looking around for something to eat as I was out shopping at like a Williams and Sonoma for some kitchenware for somebody for Christmas. And I was like, God, nothing looks appetizing here. And then there was a Cheesecake Factory. And I was like, okay, Cheesecake Factory has so much food that there's bound to be something that I can eat here and, I don't know, be okay with right now. So I went in there, and I had not been in a cheesecake factory in a long time. And I was so shaken by the decor of this place. I was so um, taken aback that I, at, when I had gotten home, and this was at like 12 midnight, um, I wrote a Twitter thread um, about the cheesecake factories. I think I called it a postmodern design hellscape. Um, and so, yeah, and I, I wrote this thread where I just roasted the Cheesecake Factory visually and included pictures and I roasted their menu. Um, and I, my favorite point that, uh, I made was that the actual cheesecake in the Cheesecake Factory is relegated to this tiny, sad little cooler in a corner of the restaurant. Like it was perhaps the focus once, but no more. It has grown into its own beast. Um, and then the next day I wake up and I get a text says, Max, you're in Time Magazine online. And I'm like, what? So apparently Chrissy Teigen found my tweets and retweeted them. 
And I think it has like 42,000 retweets, probably even higher now that I haven't looked in a while. Um, and I, I literally went from 2,000 to 6,000 followers in the course of 48 hours. Um, and that was really kind of a surreal experience um, and an existential one where I was like, you know, I just worked. And the reason I don't really like to, you know, outwardly mention train and it's okay to talk about it but I, the reason i don't trumpet it is that train was made in a really hard time in my personal life it took it started as a student project and it took almost three years to get the game out and it really didn't make much of an impact and so i decided to really just move on from train crossneak vanilla crossneak was born out of the desire to make something that's the exact opposite from train rather than have it be narrative driven and kind of mechanically experimental, I wanted it to be very mechanics focused and simple in scope. Um, so I, and so I had, you know, kind of been recovering from that and I've been working on Crossneak and hoping that that would open a new door for me. And then this thing that was totally unrelated to anything that I had been working for, for the past decade blew up and I was like, screw it, nothing matters. Nothing matters, this is all fake. And I'm going to run a Kickstarter and I'm going to get a bunch of money. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so you you capitalized on virality in a way that is sort yes. of connected in the sense that it began as a rant about design. And 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 Crossneak Plus is a design focused or an, or an aesthetically thoughtful game. But beyond that, it was like you just you just used what you had ready at hand. Yeah, I was, I was in the right place at the right time and said the right stuff at the right time. Though, um, what I think is important to say is to help get the word out about the Kickstarter, I did a lot more of what I call design threads on Twitter. I covered things like Epcot Center, a place near and dear to my heart, um, Disney Quest. Um, I recently did one on the London Trocadero. I did one on the Millennium Dome, which is a very, very Y2K thing from London. If you haven't read about the Millennium Dome, I recommend taking a look at it because it's a trip and it talks about Y2K and demonstrates Y2K um, kind of cultural zeitgeist in a way that I can never do. Um, and so I, I created this format called a design thread. And I was like, okay, people like when I talk about design, I'm going to you know, make this a thing that I do. And I made it a thing that I did. And that was really how I got the Kickstarter funded by making those and tagging it hey, with, hey, if you like what I have to say about design, I'm trying to design a game. So maybe give me some money. And it worked. So yeah. I was able to harness that. Um, but other than that, yeah, it's kind of, you know, a lightning strike. I was yeah, shocked. completely. But you capitalized in it in a relatively specific way. You embraced your your flattened temporary identity as the guy who rants about design that you've seen but not thought about. You went yeah. for it, right? It's not it's yeah. not that you just said, you know, by the way, as long as you're here, here's my SoundCloud or whatever. You said like, here is something vaguely related to why you got interested in me for ten seconds anyway. Give me a dollar while you're still interested, which is smart, I say. Thank you. Yeah, I, I did the best with the, the scenario, and I still do um, design threads once in a while. They've taken kind of a backseat while I've been working and finishing up the game, but I, I do have a couple of more topics that I uh, want to cover. Sega World Sydney is one of them that I want to do in the future. That, nice. that place, if you haven't seen, it's really cool. But yeah, that's uh, that's how I got here. Legit, legit. Yeah, yeah. Epcot is a, def is a totally fascinating one. I actually just got the chance to see Galaxy's Edge, speaking of Disney zones. And that's oh, a, yeah. a fascinatingly designed space in a whole bunch of ways. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'll link to your design threads or, or at least a, a handful of them and and let people know what the, what happened after the virality. Because it, it's so funny. Like I was, you know, I was going through stuff that's written about you and I, I you know, I didn't dig for this specific thing. I didn't know to. Uh, but I, I didn't find the cheesecake. Fa like I found train before I found the cheesecake factory. You know what I mean? That's so if, if you were worried that this was going to become you, at least, at least the wacko way I look into people, that wasn't the case. So sleep easier on that front. That makes me very happy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear it. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This was lovely. Oh, of course. I had a fantastic time talking about this. Oh, glad you, glad, glad to hear it. Thank you so much and have a really good one. Me too. And that's the show. Crossneak Plus, which I kept calling Crossnick Plus, kinda, because I am from California and all vowels eventually flatten into a single monovowel, so apologies for that. Crossneak Plus is available on Steam, Itch, and Switch. You can also try the original non-plus version of Crossneak on Itch if you want to, you know, get a flavor, decide whether it's your thing. 
The game's entirely excellent soundtrack is available on Bandcamp, and Max's design threads, including but by no means limited to the infamous Cheesecake Factory one, live on his Twitter feed. Links in the show notes. The Everybody's Talking at Once podcast is hosted and produced by me, Drew Messenger Michaels, with much appreciated cross-disciplinary support, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm deeply sorry, from Francis Michelle Lopez and Lucio Valentino. Our logo is by Aaron Perry Zucker using icons from The Noun Project, and you can find the show on Apple, Stitcher, Google, Spotify, Pocket Casts, Overcast, Radio Public, and I don't think currently Breaker, actually. Breaker seems to have dropped the new episodes from the feed for no clear reason, but I don't know that anybody listened to us on Breaker anyway, so, you know, whatever. You can always find us in the feline-run, Y2K aesthetic cyber museum of your dreams, or at etaopod.com.